Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. As we will endeavor over the next several weeks to discuss resurrection, I know that in Christmas time we really want to most want to talk about the birth. But without the resurrection, the birth would mean nothing. But also without the birth, the resurrection would mean nothing. And so we will see that they are connected. But I am so thankful to be with you this morning, brothers and sisters. If you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll begin in verse 20 in just a moment. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, maybe three, we're going to be looking at this series on resurrection truths. Now, Paul has already, back in the previous 19 verses, given us proof of the resurrection. Back in verse 3 and 4, you may remember that Paul stated that he delivered to the Corinthians that which was of first importance. There were two pillars there, two foundations of first importance. There was the fact that Jesus died on our behalf and the fact that Christ rose from the grave. And so Paul delivered this to the Corinthians in which they had received. They believed it and they stood on this. But over time, some of the Corinthians began to waver on their belief of resurrection. Not necessarily Jesus' resurrection, but their own resurrection. But what we found was that in denying the resurrection, we put that second pillar, Christ's bodily resurrection, in jeopardy. And so that, that put the gospel in jeopardy. And so the Apostle Paul comes and he tells us that Christ has been risen, that he, has, he gives us proof of this. And then now, starting in verse 20, Paul will begin to explain our own resurrection. And so throughout this to the very end, we're going to be begin to look at different truths that the Apostle Paul is going to give us concerning the truth of resurrection. And so there are three today that I want to look at. And so we'll just get into three this morning. I want you and I to see the source of our resurrection. I want you to see the schedule of our resurrection. And then I want you to see the solace or the comfort of our resurrection. So we have the source, the schedule, and the solace. If you will, notice with me, beginning in verse 20. He begins by saying, But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits after those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom, of the, of the kingdom to God and Father. And when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy will be abolished as death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted, accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who has subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And may God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. 
As I said, there will be, there's three truths that Paul is going to give us this morning in, from his teaching on the resurrection here. And so I, I, I pray, as I said, I know that this is that time of the year we look at the, the, the birth of Christ, but I do believe that this is extremely relevant with all that is kind of going on in the world. That, as I said a few weeks ago, that one of the things that really kind of bothered the Apostle Paul was that they had denied the resurrection. And so that really kind of began to unravel the, the gospel itself. But not only is it wrong to deny the resurrection, but even for you and I to ignore and not embrace the power and the strength of God that comes through resurrection. We tend to ignore and we tend to, or maybe we look at Jesus' resurrection as an escape goat, as a failsafe, that when all else fails in this world, at least I know Jesus rose from the grave and so will I. But the Apostle Paul doesn't allow for that. He actually comes and he says, you need to understand that the resurrection is not a failsafe. It is of great importance for you and I. And so he begins here by showing us that Christ is the source of our resurrection. Paul plainly states that since Jesus was physically resurrected, that you and I, the Corinthians as well, will obtain a physical resurrection. And so you may ask, how can this be? Next week, we'll actually get into what this will even look like. I mean, how does this even play out where Paul begins to talk about the perishable becoming the imperishable? But how does this happen? How can we, who are flesh and blood, be raised from the dead? Well, notice that he writes that Jesus was the first fruits. We hit on this last week. This is Old Testament language. Before the Israelites harvested their crops, they were to bring a representative sample called the first fruits to the priest. As an offering to the Lord, we see this in Leviticus chapter 23. The full harvest could not be made until the first fruits were offered. John MacArthur emphasizes that this is Paul's point. Paul, Paul's point is, is that Christ's resurrection was the first of a resurrection harvest. You cannot separate the resurrection of Christ from our own resurrection, the resurrection of believers. And that's exactly what they had done. He shows us that Christ was the first, indicating that the harvest will follow later. Therefore, Christ's resurrection cannot be isolated, and therefore our physical resurrection is guaranteed in Christ. I picture my, my own father in this, that as a young boy, my dad, we had a really big garden at the time, and, and so I, I've never been a big gardener, but, but even now that I've gotten older, I tend to enjoy the fruits of his labor and Mr. Garland's labor and other farmers out here who bring vegetables, because uh, I do not have green thumbs. And so uh, you, always, you always know um, that when my dad plants his garden and he gets the first five-gallon bucket of vegetables, right? It may not be a lot. It may not all be peas. It may be a mixture of the squash and the beans and those types of things. But that was the first bucket, that was the first bucket, and you know that the, that the harvest would come. I knew, I know that later that when my dad brings the first bucket to the house and drops it off, I know that for the next several weeks there's going to be other buckets of vegetables and things to come, right? And so that's, that's kind of what Paul is saying. There is this first harvest, there's this first fruit that is gathered, and then later there's going to be this grand harvest in which everyone's going to get to be a part of. And so Paul is saying here that Jesus is the first, and there's going to be this great following later, this great harvest of the many. Well, what proof do we have of this? Because we know that this has not happened yet, and we're still looking forward to this. So what proof do we have that this great harvest is going to come, that Jesus Christ is the first fruits, the source of our resurrection? Well, 
notice that he points to our father Adam. He says, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and so also in Christ all will be made alive. You see, brothers and sisters, just as Adam is the source of death for us, it was Adam who ate of the forbidden fruit. It was Adam who was told that if you eat of this tree, you will die. It was Adam who was the source, the, the beginning of death for all of mankind. Similarly, Jesus becomes the source of our resurrection. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19, where he tells us, By one transgression entered sin into the world, and all became sinful. All became under the wrath of God. But by the one willing act of sacrifice of Jesus Christ, they all are made righteous. Those who believe upon Christ will be made righteous by His one act, just as all were made sinful. Now, this is not universalism. This is the issue of those who have faith in Christ. All who place faith in Christ will be made righteous. So Paul, once again, just like he does in Romans, is pointing to our father Adam. And he says that Adam's sinful act caused his death and it caused his death and every person identified in him, which is you and I, which is all of humanity. This includes you and me. We die because we are placed under the curse that was placed upon our father, Adam. But similarly, Jesus' perfect sacrifice results in resurrection and life. To all who are identified in Christ. And this includes everyone who would repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we see this in the garden. And we see it all throughout scripture. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 17, God would say to Adam, he would say, From the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat from it you will surely die. And death did take place. Spiritual death and even the beginning of physical death began to take place. But later in chapter 3, verse 15, after Adam eats of the fruit and the curse is beginning to, to unfold, there in verse 15 we hear of the wonderful promise that a seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent's head. God tells, he prophesies, he promises that a Savior will one day come and he will reverse that which Satan himself has put into motion. He will reverse the curse that has been placed upon all of us. Death will be replaced with life. And so we see this played out even in the next few verses. For in verse 21, we see God, out of great mercy and grace, take two animals, slaughter those animals, and then he covers Adam with the skins of those animals. This becomes the pattern by which we see throughout all of Scripture. Adam and Eve sinned and brought death. Sin brings death. Your sin brings death. Your sin deserves death. But by the grace and the mercy of God, Jesus Christ, who was sacrificed on the cross, on the cross, he brings life. This happened when Christ would go to Calvary, willingly lay his life down on our behalf. And then he would rise from the grave, bringing forth life. Beloved, the first Adam brings death. The second Adam, Jesus, brings life. Christ has reversed the results of Adam's sin resulting in this life. And so this is the source of our resurrection. This is what the Apostle Paul is pointing to. He is pointing to Jesus. Just as all die in Adam because of Adam's transgression, all who repent and believe in Christ will be made right with him. There will be this general resurrection of the unbeliever and the believer. 
But we are talking about the believers and life, not just a resurrection to judgment, but a resurrection to eternal life, Paul says, can be found in Christ. And so I would ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, who are you identified with? You are in one or the other. Just as we saw today in Sunday school with Solomon talking about the issue of old age and the you know, and the watchmen become trembling and the, the door closes and, and, you know, don't hear as well. And the teeth, that they no longer grind as they used to because they, they tend to fall out. You know, we, we see the curse placed upon man. We're all aging and we're all dying, brother. This comes from the curse and we are in our father Adam. We are, we are under that curse, but it is in Christ that we are made alive. It is Christ who reverses this curse for us. Are you in Christ, brothers and sisters? To be found in Christ is to be part of the great harvest, to be part of the great resurrection onto life. But you must place your faith in Him. You must repent of your sin. You must receive and stand on the gospel, forsaking your sin, running from your sin, and running unto Jesus. You must believe that Jesus Christ died on behalf of your sins, that Christ rose from the grave. If there is one today that I would say that if you are living in unrepentant sin, if you are living in unbelief this morning, hear me this morning, you will die. Even the believer will die. But you will not be raised to to life. You will be raised to judgment, the second death, eternal damnation. There is only hope in Christ. There was only hope in the second Adam, the one who who conquered sin, who conquered death and rose from the grave. So if you are in unrepentant sin and living in unbelief, hear me this morning. Christ is your only hope and He is your, can be your Savior. Call out to Him to save you. Call out to Him to forgive you. Call out to Him to cover you. Call out to Him to be your source of life. Because if, there, if you are not in Jesus, you are only standing in death. And always in death. And that is what Paul says. Only those in Christ will find life. But notice that he not only calls us or shows us the source of life. Notice he also gives us the schedule of this resurrection. Notice he says, he says in verse 23, he says, But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits after those who are Christ at His coming. Then comes the end. And when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for He has put all things in subjection under His feet. Now pay careful attention to this, because Paul doesn't want to give us any kind of weird doctrine here. He says he's put all things under subjection under his feet, but he says, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected who, who puts all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. In other words, everything will be put under, all the enemies will be put under the foot, under the heel of Christ. But then Christ, when he hands over the kingdom to his Father, he himself will submit to the Father. And so we see this very thing within the Trinity. 
that they are equal, they are, they are all God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, but there are these different roles here. And so you have at the end of the day, God the Father who is all in all here. And so he, he, wants, us to be under, he wants us to understand the issue of the Trinity there. But there, is a greater, but there is a great concept here that I want you to see on this schedule of the resurrection and this subjecting of all the enemies. So, so notice here that according to Scripture, God has a predetermined appointment. And we know this. We know this from Genesis Revelation that God has predetermined all, all, you know, all things here. And so that, that we, the birth of Jesus was predetermined, all that, his death. But now we see that God has on his divine calendar another event. And it is called the end. When, when all things are going to come to an end. And so the, the Apostle Paul addresses the schedule. Now, humanity is very obsessed with the, the divine calendar of God. We're constantly looking for this sign and that sign and, and it pointing to the end, all right? And so Paul says, well, let me give you a little bit, but let me just warn you, don't set your watches. You don't get all of these things. Paul is just going to lay out three clear little things, and it's really going to leave you wanting. Notice what he says. First comes Christ. Christ is raised. Well, we got that. Christ has been risen. Then Paul says, then we will be raised. Well, when is that? He doesn't tell us. Wait, no, he does tell us. It's called the end. So there's Christ raised, and you'll be raised, and then there's the end. Well, when is that? He doesn't tell you. We're always looking to to know when this is going to come, and God doesn't give us this because he doesn't want us to know. But he does tell us about the resurrection, that the great resurrection is going to happen at the end. And there's a lot of debate over the end and what that entails. And the majority of it is driven a lot by our eschatological views, our end-time views or end-time camp that you're in. Whether you're a pre-mill, you're pre-mill, amill, or post-mill. And even then you get into different camps. And, and a lot of that is, is, is kind of drives the force of when this end is going to take place. And I think that we need not make this too difficult that the Greek word in here is the Greek word telos, which refers to a goal that is achieved, a result that has been attained. And so what he's saying here is, is that we don't need to make this too complicated. God is saying that when his plan is achieved for all of humanity, when, when all is said and done, when God's will is done for us on, on this earth, the end will take place. And when the end takes place, there will be this resurrection But notice what he says will happen. We're so worried about when it's going to happen, we don't really look to see what's going to happen. Paul says that when Christ returns and the great resurrection happens, he will subject all of his enemies under his foot. To subject means to come under the authority. And notice what will be placed under the heel of Christ. All enemies, Satan, the world, unbelievers, tyrants, evil, wicked kings, evil, wicked people, all things, Satan himself, will all be placed under the heel of Christ. But notice that he said something else. So will death. Did you see that? He's talking Revelations 20, 11 through 14. That when 
that, that he's going to take death itself. He's going to take it and he's going to cast death into the lake of fire. And it will be abolished. The word abolished means brought to an end, destroyed, never to be seen again. Brothers and sisters, can we just stop for a moment and let us pay attention not to when it's going to happen, but to what is going to happen. Death will die. Think about that for just a moment. Death. The the thing that you cannot defeat, the thing that Solomon wrote about this morning that all of us are going to have to experience, we're all heading there, and there is an appointed time in which all men, all women are going to die. You will not die one second too late or one second too early. We are all going to face, face death. But so will death face death. But not like you and I will. Death will be put to death in the lake of fire. It will be cast out, abolished, never to return. And so in the end, who's left standing? We are. Can you stop for a moment and just think about what that means? All the loved ones that you've lost, all the ones, and again, we're talking believers here, all the Christian loved ones that you have lost, all the ones who died tragically, all those who died too soon before their time, all those who experienced hardships and suffering and trouble and they died, all those who were believers in Christ who died of COVID, all those who were believers and died under the persecution of wicked kingdoms. They will be alive. And death will be no more. In other words, who gets the last laugh? Not death. This is beautiful. This is, this is so amazing. And it even gets better because notice what Paul is saying here. He doesn't, he, notice the, 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 the form he uses. It's an aristotense form. Aristotense form here. This is amazing because Paul is speaking of an event that is in the future. Where God is going to raise the dead. And we will get to watch Christ place all of the enemies under his heel. And he will abolish death forever. But notice it hasn't happened. You're sitting here going, Brother Brian, I, I know, I know that it's going to happen. But, I, but when is it going to happen? It doesn't matter. Because if you have faith in Christ, you are to live as though it already happened. Look at what he's saying. Paul is speaking of this in past tense, a future event that still has not occurred as though it has already taken place. In other words, Paul is so certain because he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this event, this future event will occur. He speaks of it in past tense. Basically, brothers and sisters, hear me this morning. It is good as done. But, but Brother Brian, I lost, I lost someone that I love. It's as good as done. They will rise. They will rise and death will be swallowed up in victory. So no, brothers and sisters, we don't get the exact day. We don't get the exact time. You don't get to set your watches to it. God didn't mean for you to do that. Stop looking to that. And instead, stop, start looking to what he's telling you. Death will die. 
And all enemies will be placed under Christ, no sooner, no later than the end. And this will be the great climax of human history. And when it happens, you will never have to worry about death again. This is why he will write, death, where is thou sting? Death is swallowed up in victory because Christ will abolish it. And a matter of fact, brothers and sisters, the way that we can look at this is is in this way. That when Christ rose from the grave, it was as though Christ himself pierced and mortally wounded death. It's limping. Do you want to know what a picture of death is this morning for you and me? You heard it in Sunday school. The grasshopper that drags himself, that's death. It's dying. Because every day, every second that we get closer to the end, when that end comes, it will be abolished. It need not scare us. And so, brothers and sisters, this is a promise to claim for you this morning. Think for for me, for just one minute, what if you had no assurance from day to day that the sun would not rise? What if you went to bed tonight? And there was no assurance, there was no promise. You could not guarantee that the sun will rise tomorrow. Your life would be in turmoil. If this is how you lived every day, no guarantee of the sun coming up, your life would be in turmoil. You would go to bed fearful of what would come the next day. You, you would have no idea. There would be no preparation for tomorrow's labors and tasks. Not to mention, you would probably go to bed with no joy of expectation of seeing the sun rise and being to do the things that you normally do. Beloved, the promise of the sun rising is a great deal of importance to you and I in our daily life. But so is the divine promise of the resurrection that God has promised us. You may not know when it will come, but God has promised it. And God has been faithful to keep His promises. And so therefore, you can claim this promise. You can stand on this promise. You can trust this promise. Christ will come back. Christ will subject everything, even death. And we will rise from the grave. And so therefore, you can claim and live in this promise today. Just as you can claim and live and prepare for tomorrow, you know the sun will come. What do we do, brothers and sisters, What do we do with the promise of knowing that resurrection will one day happen for us? Well, number one, we do what we're doing now. We go to church. Amen? Because how else do we laugh in the face of the enemies of God? How else do we rejoice in the promise that one day, no matter what comes to me, no matter how I die, no matter what may may befall upon my physical form, I can look in the face of the enemies of God and I can say, you will not harm me, you will not put me to shame, I will not be afraid of you, but to get up every Sunday morning and come to church and sing and pray and hear the preaching of God's word. This is the greatest expression, brothers and sisters, of the promise that we have been given, that we believe the promise, not that Jesus died, just died for my sins and saved me from my sins, but the promise that one day he is going to bring me forth physically from the grave. If you want to add a little sugar on top of that, then not only that, we take the Lord's Supper which we'll be doing in a few weeks. We're going to be taking the Lord's Supper on Christmas Eve service. Go ahead and mark your calendars for that. Because the Lord's Supper is not only a time in which we look back 
and we rejoice in the, in the thing that Christ has done and the fact that he died and rose from the grave. But the Lord's Supper is also a time in which we look forward to the great resurrection, the day that he comes to receive us as his own. You can also live with joy and not complaint. I understand that life is hard and I understand that bad things happen. I understand people die. But brothers and sisters, if our faith is real, if our faith is deep, it does not just stop that Christ died and rose to save me. It goes further. I know that death will not win. I know that the trials of this world are only but a moment of vapor. And so therefore, I must live in the trials. I must live in the suffering. I must live surrounded by death with the attitude, with the faith of joy and not complaint. I would even say this, brothers and sisters, that when the believer dies, even when the believer suffers and dies, we are to take comfort and rejoice for death will not win. Paul does not write and go, death is winning for a little bit, but, but don't worry, God's going to pull. No. Paul says, death has already lost. And so when the believer dies and we come to the funeral and we see the body there, we know that to be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we rejoice because we know that what death set out to do, it failed. Because Christ has reversed it and we're alive. Again, we do not pity the, the believer who dies. We do not pity the one who suffers greatly and dies. The Christian is not to be pitied even in death. No, we pity the unbeliever who does not know Christ. We pity the one who will only know death and destruction for all eternity. And I would say to the unbeliever this morning, hear me on this. You do not get to claim this promise. You do not get to claim this promise based upon how good you are or because you went to church. You need to understand where you are in this. As an unbeliever, you are the one who will be placed under the heel of Christ and cast into the lake of fire along with death. That is the unbeliever. And so I, I would urge you again, if you are in un, living in unrepentant sin and living in unbelief, hear me this morning, you must come to know Christ as Savior Come to know Him as Father. Come to know Him as your, as your Lord and your King and not your enemy. Because when the end happens, He will win. And we will all rejoice in the victory in Christ. But thirdly, I want you to notice the comfort or the, the solace, solace that comes from our resurrection. Look at verse 29. He says, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And as we come to this third principle, this third truth of resurrection, we are confronted with one of the most difficult verses in all the Bible, verse 29. It is extremely difficult. There are multiple, multiple interpretations of this, and many, many of them have gone paganistic. 
this idea where you can baptize, somebody's died and you can get baptized on their behalf so that you can move them from hell to heaven. We, we see that in the Mormon religion. That is not what Paul is saying. That, that is paganism. We have to understand, what, let me first just share with you, this does not mean that, or point to proxy baptism. That would contradict justification by faith alone. It would contradict all the scripture. This, in truth, this verse is hard to understand. We know some things, it may have been, some have said it was the preparation of the body. They were washing the body, getting it ready for its burial. Others have said that martyrs would die, and so Christians, new Christians would be baptized at their funerals as though they were filling their shoes. We don't know exactly what was going on, but we understand the point that Paul is making And we get that point by, again, looking at verses 30 through 32, where Paul is describing how his own life is daily in danger because of the labor of Christ, because of the labor that God has called him to. Paul says, as sure as I am about you and, and Christ in you, I am as sure that every day may be my last day. So Paul is describing that every day that he wakes up, he recognizes and understands that he lives his life as though today is my last day. And so the death was all, or death was always nipping at Paul's heels. And so the point here is it's very simple. Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection of the dead, what is the point of my labors? What is the point if I die and will not be raised? If resurrection is a lie, I have wasted my life. I have wasted my work. I am above all people to be pitied. If death is all I have to look forward to, then I must stop laboring I must eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow I die. Does that not sound familiar to us? And so the same is in verse 21. Paul is saying, whatever the action they were doing, he was saying, the point is, is that there is no point if there is no resurrection. In fact, we could probably take this even further, brothers and sisters. Why get baptized at all if there is no resurrection from the dead? It all seems rather pointless. And so Paul is saying, without resurrection, there is no comfort. There's no comfort. There's no purpose in your struggle. You have cancer? What's the point? Someone that you love died, brought, has brought great grief to your family. What's the point? You come to church even though your body hurts and it aches. Well, why come to church? If, you have, if your body aches in the morning when you're older, why go to church if you're not going to be raised? Why, why physically press on? Without the resurrection, why suffer anything? Why suffer any terrible affliction if there is no future life for us? But there is. That because of the resurrection of Christ from the dead, we can find comfort in our trials, in our afflictions, in what we go through. We can find comfort in knowing that our actions and our labors for the gospel, our labors at church and for the church, our trials and our hardships and our sicknesses, yes, our entire lives are not lived in vain. FBC, I understand the world is a very dangerous place. It was dangerous before COVID, and it will be dangerous long after COVID. If there is no hope for a future after death, then this is all that there is and we need to protect our life. If there is no physical resurrection, grab a a bubble and live in the bubble. 
Shop on Amazon and never darken the, your outside, outside your door. But this is not the end. And nor is this our best life now. And I believe that this is really some of the problems that we're struggling with through COVID is that many of us believe that this is the best life that we have. Sorry, Joel Olstein, you're wrong. This is not the best life. Newsflash, brothers and sisters. The life that awaits you is far better than this life. The life that awaits you is far better than your marriage. And far better than the love of your children. Far better than Christmas with your family. It is far better than your hell. The life that awaits you is so much grander than this life. So much, Christian, this life is as close to hell as you will get. And then to the unbeliever, this is as close to heaven as you will ever get. For the believer, this is, this is hell on earth. The sufferings and the trials that we deal with, this is as bad as it's going to get. And I'm afraid that many of us have no comfort in this life, no joy in suffering, no peace through our trials. Because we want to hold on to this life. We believe that death is going to take away the grandest thing that we have. And this is why we look back to the old days and we think, man, how good were those old days? I want to go back to those days. And yet we never look to the days that are to come. I look to those days, amen? Because those are going to be better than these days. And so Paul didn't look back to find strength for his labors. He didn't look back or look to the world to find strength to face his suffering. He he didn't look to the world and man's inventions and man's systems to overcome his fear to live life now. Do you want to know how Paul conquered his fear and his struggles to live life now to the fullest? He wrote Romans 8.18 For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You hear what he did there? I struggle. I suffer. I may die. I may die today. Today may be my last. Paul, how did you press on? Brother, it wasn't even worth thinking about. Why? It's not even worth comparing. Today is not even worth comparing to the future I have in Christ. If you see some of you struggle to live with courage and you struggle to live with joy and peace, you struggle to live with faithfulness because you lack the comfort that is found in a resurrection that has already been won for you, you're still questioning it. You can't live bravely in this world because you're still unsure about the future that God has for you. Our faith, brothers and sisters, goes so, so far, so deep that even in the physical world, our faith will shine that we are not afraid to live. We have allowed the trials and the tribulations and we've allowed the sufferings and the fears of the world to steal away the joy of salvation in our present. And if you want to know what this looks like, the the two differences, only look to the disciples. On the one hand, when Christ died and they had no hope, 
There was, there was no belief. There was no assurance of a resurrection. They huddled in secrecy and fear, trembling at the thought of death. But when Christ walked into that room and said, look at these scars, look at where the nails were. And when Christ gave them the assurance of their own resurrection, they became the mightiest followers the world has ever, of Christ the world has ever known. That's the difference. Those whose faith is in Christ and in faith in the future that is before them do not huddle in secrecy, do not huddle in fear. No, they live boldly for Christ. And some of us need this comfort this morning. We need this comfort that can only come through sanctification of the Holy Spirit and through the sanctification of God's Word. And if we ever thought that the dangers of this world are over with, they are just beginning. They are not over with. I am afraid that the last two years will not be the worst that we have ever seen. So what will press you forward? What will press you forward to face this life and live this life with confidence and assurance? It is Christ. It is Christ and it has always been Christ. And some of you need that sanctification this morning. You you need to repent because you know you have not lived as you have. You have lived with fear and and, and lived with with no assurance. And you you need to just repent and come to Him and say, I'm sorry that I have not embraced this life, this promise that you have given me. You need to begin praying for God to sanctify you and comfort you. You need to read and you need to study the life to come. Get in the Word, brothers and sisters. How can you not know about the resurrection? How can you have faith in the resurrection? How can you have faith in the future if you are not reading of it? In the Word of God, letting it dwell in you, letting it saturate you. To be reminded that when you go to a funeral or when someone ends up in the hospital, you are reminded when you sit down and you read Revelations 20, 11 through 14, death will be cast into the lake of fire. Find strength in prayer and accountability partners. Find strength and comfort in the corporate worship of God every Sunday. To those who have this comfort, hear me this morning. Let us not waste it. Stand boldly without fear when trials may come. Labor to the end, though it may be your last. Labor, though it may be hard and it may be difficult on your physical body, on your, on your finances. Labor, labor, because you know the future is grand. And let us model the example of peace in the storm that surrounds us. And brothers and sisters, I would beg of you to lead the church, to lead our church through prayer, through labor, through strength and wisdom. I close with J.R. Tolkien this morning. If we ask, what does all this mean, Brother Brian? I will sum it up in his words. The birth, the death, and the resurrection of Christ means that, when, that one day everything that is sad will become untrue. Everything that is sad, everything that is heartbreaking, everything that is hard and difficult will no longer be. It will be untrue. Because when Christ comes and He subjects all things and we rise from the grave, we will only know the true glory and joy of God for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, we need not live in fear. We need not live in sadness. We need not worry of death. Because death has already been defeated. 
because Christ is the source of life, and because God has set on his divine calendar a day that will come about where he will place death under his heel and he will kick it into the lake of fire to never be seen again. Take comfort, take peace in knowing that God is going to reverse the effects of death. And he already is. He has already brought joy to us in a world of brokenness and sadness. It has been undone through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen and amen. Let's pray.